0: I met my best friend, Anne, in 1985. And the Babysitter's
1: Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988, and she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme, these books are great. Now, now we're all grown In Stony Brook. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 36, Jessie's Babysitter.
2: So it's a not very exciting title of a book and not very exciting of a book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I liked this one. Mm.
2: I liked it because we got to go inside Jessie's head a bit. We get a little bit more flavor mm. from her. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's go into our one-sentence summaries. Uh, Mine is, Jesse gets pissed and apparently knows a lot about volcanoes.
1: (laughs) Nice. Um, Mine is, Aunt Cecilia apparently agrees to do all of the Ramsey family's reproductive labor for free, and in exchange earns disdain from her nieces. (laughs)
0: All right. Uh, mine is Jesse loses her magical status as she tortures her aunt who just wants her to succeed in a racist country. And also she makes Jackie fail at science.
1: Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. Geez. That was harsh.
0: <laughs> I'm like very far on hashtag team Aunt Cecilia in this book. I was like, dang, Jesse. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of but with you, actually. Yeah, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart.
2: I'm Anna Chakala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth.
1: And I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. (laughs) <laughs> can't do it so close if you want to learn more about us and how we know each other check out our prologue episode also rate and review us it helps people find the podcast if you have any questions comments or commentary about anything bsc related drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com so we have some news
0: which is that we started a patreon yay Ooh.
1: give us your money yeah it's very exciting Um,
0: I love that our, our Marxist colleague is the first one to yell, give us your money. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, yeah, it's voluntary. Um, give me that wage slavery,
1: baby. (laughs) Sorry. Continue.
0: We've had a few people ask us about it. And, um, because of Emily's anti-capitalist views, we would prefer not to do, um, ads for like, I'm not going to say something that we don't want to do an ad for, but we'd prefer not to do ads (laughs) So we started a Patreon and you can support us. You can support us for as little as $3 a month. Um, And you can get all kinds of cool, stuck in Stony Brook exclusive stuff. You know, you can still listen for free and that's great too. And it would be really lovely if you want to become a patron and join our little Stony Brooker community.
2: I feel like our monetary goals are very modest. Yeah. I think our goals are to recoup the cost of our
0: microphones.
2: Mm-hmm. and the condoms yep. and
0: the the twinkies and, and ca- the ca- candy that i send emily oh great and the and the babysitter's club books
1: well don't give us too much money <laughs> i don't want more candy <laughs> but
0: that may be something that if you're a patron maybe you can get some candy maybe you can get exclusive content of emily trying more candies that she doesn't want to try great i can't wait <laughs> just an idea okay check it out everybody we hope you'll come see what it's like patreon.com
2: while you support us, you could also support these
1: gals. Hi, I'm Jody. I'm Allison, and we want to talk to you about our podcast, The Bloom Saloon. It's a JD Bloom book club. We actually read each book one by one and discuss every chapter in minute yeah, so you don't have to read along. Or you can, that's fun too. We do dramatic readings, which I think is the most fun. We get really into the characters that Judy's created for us. Jody, what's been your favorite book that we've read so far? Tiger Eyes, what Ooh. about you? Are You There, Goddess Me, Margaret? It is a classic, and we Iconic. were just so taken with that book when we read it. You've done Dini? Wifey Blubber Then again, maybe I won't A non-duty book, domestic arrangements Shout out Norma Klein Otherwise known as Sheila the Great Tales of a fourth grade nothing Forever Who could forget Ralph? I'd love to forget Ralph <laughs> <laughs> It's not for kids We record every episode in The, the Bloom Cocoon. Cocoon A cozy embrace A magical space like you. <laughs> <That's good.
0: laughs> All right. Emily, this seemed like a very, very Emily book. I'm sure you have some just little tiny things to discuss with us
1: today. Yeah. My list is domestic labor and respectability politics. So very small <laughs> bite-sized topics. Sure. Bite-sized. Yeah. Bite-sized. Um, yeah. I mean, I thought the premise of the book was interesting, right? So Aunt Cecilia, Jesse's dad's sister moves in with them because jesse's mom gets a job which they're all very excited about mm-hmm. apparently she's hasn't worked since i guess jesse was born so for 11 years mm-hmm. and she's been wanting to go back to work i'm forgetting what the job is do you guys remember do they say she's in marketing or advertising something like that. Is Adver- that right? advertising yes yay capitalism yay selling things well I just, you know, for a Black
0: woman in 1990 to be in advertising in the, like, New York metro area, I feel like is, like, a hard thing. Yeah. So I'm just impressed with Mrs. Ramsey for that reason.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so it's interesting. So, So Aunt Cecilia moves in with them specifically to, like, care for the kids and cook and clean, right? Like, the list of things she's responsible for is, like, very, like archetypal definitional domestic labor right she's mm-hmm. she's cleaning the house she's caring for the family and she's cooking the meals mm-hmm. um and i i mean it's interesting so in the us right like we don't really have a kind of cultural tradition of like big families living in one home and like helping each other out with domestic labor it tends to be something that's kind of slapped together and it's a it's um an echelon of labor that there that's remunerated right there's a um oftentimes it's work done for a wage although the wage Mm -hmm. is stereotypically or typically um quite low right so like Mm uh i think i can't remember if it's the median or the or the average but there's like some Uh, domestic workers make about $12 an hour which is like much less than other workers in the United States in in today in 2020 right which Mm -hmm. generally other workers make like $20 an hour kind of on on average across a bunch of other sectors Um, Mm -hmm. and so like even compared with kind of demographically similar workers so like The vast majority of domestic workers are women in the United States, like half are black, Hispanic or Asian American, like 65 percent of domestic workers are born in the U.S., um, but they're more likely than other workers to have been born outside the U.S. And they tend to be older than other workers. And so Mm. like even compared with um, workers who are demographically similar, domestic workers make like 74 cents to the dollar, which I guess Mm. kind of tracks with like. gender wage gap in general right and like if 90 percent of domestic workers are women right and domestic (laughs) workers make 75 cents for every dollar that peers make that kind of tracks with the the gender wage gap in general um but they're also like three times as likely to be living in poverty as other workers (laughs) which is like fucking sad um and like they receive no benefits so like up until The like 50s and 60s, they were domestic labor was explicitly excluded from the Fair Labor Standards Act. So you couldn't, you can't like it was a legal to, or you didn't have any rights for like unionization or any other form of legal recourse to mm-hmm. protection of any kind of labor needs or standards in the United States that has like changed a bit. Um, and there's like a bunch of kind of advocacy organizations for domestic workers. And there's been kind of pushes to unionize and to sort of um, standardize the the wage and the working conditions of domestic labor. But like in the United States, it's largely a thing that's, done for a wage and the wage is really low right we don't have a tradition of kind of shared (laughs) you know child rearing or we don't live in like multi-generational family homes for the large part for the most part right and with the exception of some uh immigrant communities so it's like it's interesting that we're getting a like portrayal of domestic labor in this book that like does not track with what domestic labor in the U.S. generally looks like and it's like interesting Mm. to me Right. Aunt Cecilia is her husband's dead. Right. In one book she meant or in one like moment, she mentions that she raised children of her own. But like, I don't know which of Jesse's cousins are Aunt Cecilia's kids. Right. Presumably not her cousin Keisha, who she's super close with. Um, No, I I got the feeling
0: that her kids are out and grown and she's like a significantly older sibling Mm -hmm. of Jesse's dad. Right. That's yeah. it's not stated explicitly, but and you're nodding too, like that that she's like maybe she's ten years older than Jesse's dad. And
1: mm-hmm. yeah, her kids are like grown, yeah, right? No. Maybe with but yeah. like if they have kids of their own. I'm kind of unclear about what Aunt Cecilia is getting out of this circumstance. Like if, if it's just like company, she's lonely, like presumably her, I don't know, she could live with like one of her children or something, right? Like she's not she's doing a job that like ought to have a wage and <laughs> she's not getting paid for it uh, that we know of right um i i'm it, mm-hmm. it's just an interesting representation of like a that form of labor that doesn't really track with like patterns in the in the US in general and like contemporary patterns but like the extend well and like way back beyond the the time horizon of this book so i thought that was kind of interesting mimi wasn't getting paid and nanny doesn't get paid I assume. Right. But that, right, but that would our... be like if aunt Cecilia moved in with one of her kids and was caring for their children. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's that different. I mean, yeah, but I just thought it was it just interesting struck me
0: as another older relative. Yeah, no, it is interesting, but it's also interesting that why, like, I mean, I know you have plenty to say about this, but you know, we're, we we were not concerned with Mrs. Ramsey, not getting paid for doing all of those things.
1: Yeah, um, of course.
0: And now we notice that aunt Cecilia should be paid.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well and it's interesting too because this is like so you know in the 50s in the United States right like 60% of workers worked in manufacturing and now it's like 10. <laughs> and the largest mm-hmm. like 80% of American workers of work in private service provision which includes domestic labor. There are like 2.2 million domestic labor workers, domestic labor workers in the United States right now. Um and so, like, you have this this shift, right, that happens that there's a lot of feminist theorizing about, right, that when, like, women ask for entry into the power of the status quo, right, that, like, it doesn't rewrite gender or rewrite the way this is in which labor is gendered. It just, like, stratifies kind of gendered work, right? So women go, you know middle class, upper class women leave the home and enter into the works the you know, the male dominated work sphere. And then other women come into their homes to do the women's work, right? That's like poorly remunerated, And so I think it's really interesting that like, Right. That we don't have any discourse on the work that Mrs. Ramsey was doing in the home. But, you know, now we have this like now it's Aunt Cecilia's job, <laughs> but it wasn't Mrs. Ramsey's mm-hmm. job. But and we're like so proud of Mrs. Ramsey for leaving the home. Right. This thing that she's been really wanting to do. And it's um, it's really I, I just think it's really interesting because it's like or it's sort of like teased, but not teased out. And it mm-hmm. just kind of like reified a bit, I think. Like, we're not talking about domestic labor as women's work in this book, right? It's just, like, Mm -hmm. taken for Mm -hmm. granted as women's work. And, like, uh, even kind of invisibilized to an extent, right? The fact that it is being done largely by, like kids and I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast but that like all the child care in these books obviously it's the babysitter's club is either being done by kids or by like old lady <laughs> family members who aren't getting paid which is just like not who actually does domestic labor in the united states really <laughs> so it's kind of like an uh like a I, it's increasingly striking me as like not a realistic representation of like who does work in homes um which i wasn't I guess is like built into the premise, the like central conceit of the series, but like, it's still kind of, it's, it's Mm striking, it's, it's striking me more as we move through these books. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm rambling.
2: (laughs) No, it's interesting. It's like with Nanny and Cecilia, I feel like Nanny is represented as this very like lively grandma who has like a social life and she's like going bowling and she seems to have a pretty like, Her own life, in addition to, you know, taking care of the kids. Whereas Aunt Cecilia is like, oh, her husband died. She's sad and lonely. She has no children left to take care of. So, and it 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 just is like an interesting difference of like, you kind of feel like, oh, she's only doing this because she has nothing else going on. Like she can't, you know. Whereas Nanny's out with her pink clinker. That you know, Mm -hmm. that's a little bit better.
1: Yeah, and I feel like yeah. in Christie's family, the older kids do a lot more childcare, right? Like Nanny's like mostly there to kinda like help fill in the gaps because there's so many fucking kids. But like <laughs> you know, like aunt like Jesse's basically like I mean, this is part of the the drama of this book, right? Like Jessie's like trying to negotiate Aunt Cecilia's like rules and limits and prove that she's responsible and blah, 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 blah. But like, she's essentially stripped of her Prior childcare duties upon Aunt Cecilia's arrival, right? Anne Cecilia is like, nope, mm-hmm. you're no longer caring for your your younger siblings. You are a child, and I am caring for you, <laughs> which is like mm-hmm. um, different, I think, than nanny's role in in Christie's family, like Anne pointed out.
0: But Christie's family also has much older older kids. Yeah, you know, she's got 13, 15, and 17 year old, and Jesse's the eldest at 11, which, as we discussed last book, is not very old. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think it it makes sense to me it's interesting you asked like what is Aunt Cecilia getting out of this and I think potentially a lot like it sounds like you know it she she is sad and lonely Um, and sure there's labor but if it doesn't feel too laborious to her and she gets to like hang with squirt during the day and Um, if she likes to cook, we, we can sort of assume, I don't like, I don't know. It just, it, she's getting room and board and somebody to live with instead of living by herself and missing her husband. That doesn't seem that small to me. Like, I don't think she's being, I don't think it's the same as just being a domestically, like she's not hired by
1: them. Like she's a member of their family. They have growing pains, but. I just think it's interesting because it's like kind of unusual. It doesn't really reflect like the general pattern of how people do <laughs> take care of, you know, their homes and their families in the U S at least because she's not a grandparent because she is, but also like the, the data like of like live in grandparents who care for children, it, the like numbers are quite small in the United States compared to other places, just in general. It's like not, not that common. Um, and I think it's interesting that it's like really common in the books. <laughs> it's like the only right. only alternative to the families who hire thirteen year olds to babysit for their kids. <laughs> yeah. Like right. nobody it, nobody has like a, they, the, a, like a nanny that they that like a full time nanny that they pay that lives in the house. Which like in right. Connecticut, at least today, is like right. quite common. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah,
0: and I'm sure it would have been common then. Yeah, but it is more common among non white people. Yes. to have a. Uh, to have a grandparent living in the home. It so is. and yeah. I think that of the P you know, it's the two members of color of the BSC that that have this role. And mm-hmm. then Christy. Mm-hmm. Um also what's kind of interesting is
2: living in, you know, New York and LA, most people I know who have are you know are lucky enough to have parents, you know, offer childcare, the first thing my friends always say is like, oh yeah, free childcare it's not like, oh, my kid gets to spend time with their grandparent. It's like, oh, it's like like a monetary thing. That's like the first thing that comes Mm -hmm. to people's heads. It's like, oh, I don't don't have to pay like $2,000 a month for like childcare. I think that's also really interesting.
1: It's so wild too, because like we don't have like universal pre-K or anything in the United States and we don't remunerate (laughs) like, you know, we don't have parental leave or any of these things. So it's like on the one hand, domestic laborers are so poor in the United States. But on the other hand, childcare is so fucking expensive. It's like, how can both of those things be true? It's so, it's like infuriating. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it is infuriating. And I think that that totally, you know, that what you're saying, Anne, makes complete sense because of that system. Right. So it is right. a thing that is terrifying as a new parent to figure out, like, well, how do I, get this taken like yeah. how do i manage this but then it's also like child
2: student. care should be expensive though because it is like a big thing to
0: ask for someone to take care of your kid it should be remunerated but it could be uh subsidized by the government so absolutely it does not have to be expensive
1: mm-hmm. yeah so, yeah and like the, <laughs> i don't think it yeah. should be
0: expensive i think it should be remunerated well
1: right mm-hmm. yeah which are two different essential. and like who bear, who bears the cost right is the other right. question yeah yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're all socialists now, so. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I think it's because of the pressure of the whole system that that's the first thing people are mentioning.
1: Okay, so that was just like a domestic labor rant that's like nothing really wrong with the book, but it it is striking me kind of how, I don't know, like how little domestic labor features as labor in these books. And I get that that's like a just kind of central conceit. Mm-hmm. It's fun babysitting, right? And like... It, it's a book. It's a series for kids, but.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, I don't think that 10 year olds are like, tell me more about your maid, Mr. Brewer. Like, I don't like I just don't think But that maybe that's, they like, should be. That's invisible by design. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think it reflects like a general like cultural way of treating domestic labor, right? It's this like invisible thing Absolutely. that we that is like crucial to, you know, the reproduction of society on a daily and generational basis and yet we don't see it. And I think that um that just like really jumped out at me in this book in particular. Mm-hmm. Um the other thing is the respectability politics bit which is just g- g- gives is only given over to a single line of dialogue but Mm -hmm. i think uh, like haunts the book for sure right and like aunt cecilia is really hard on jesse and jesse and becca are scared of her but also angry with her and instead of talking to their parents about it they like play tricks on her that she doesn't mention and they're like what's up with this and then jesse tells the bsc about it and they're all like jesse wow like that's kind of immature isn't it (laughs) and then at the, at the end aunt cecilia when they finally talk it out aunt cecilia is like i'm hard on you because it's hard to be black right you're you're held doubly mm-hmm. accountable which is like a a like quintessential respectability politics line and but there's also like a really robust critique of that like approach to I don't know, like race relations or like fitting in, that I think is really interesting, and like it, it again, it doesn't get taken up here, and there's just that one line of dialogue, and Jesse doesn't even really reflect on that at all, which I thought was interesting, and I think I, I yeah, I was surprised about that. I thought that she might have, like, in her internal monologue, like, like thought about that. It was really—I
0: mean—that's how the whole thing read to me. The whole book along the way, right? Of like Aunt Cecilia constantly getting mad at Jessie about her hair and wanting to mm-hmm. like fix her hair up so it didn't look messy, and do all of these different things. I, you know, obviously, there's a lot of baggage around black hair and natural hair in our culture, and so that was just like glanced by. Um, which I was kind of imp- impressed with Anna Martin that it was even glanced by. But I then I did think it was going to lead to like a a deeper thought from Jesse about this issue, but you're right that we have the one line from Anne Cecilia of, I only wanted to show you that I care. I want you girls to grow up to be kind, responsible, neat, and polite. You know, it's an awful thing to have to say, but sometimes black people have to work twice as hard to prove themselves. It isn't fair, but that's the way it is sometimes.
1: And then, yeah, I mean, I feel like if that was written by, a black person instead of anna martin it wouldn't have the line it's an awful thing to say it would have been removed and we would have mm-hmm. seen the conversation of like you know we're gonna have to have a talk with squirt when he grows up about the fact that like he could right. be killed with impunity like <laughs> i mean mm-hmm. I, I just I, I mean i guess like uh, we've talked a, a lot about like how the, like, dream of multiculturalism at, in the 90s is, like, really different from how we talk about, like, racial justice now. But, it, mm-hmm. I mean, that didn't emerge in the aughts. I mean, there were, like, Black feminist theorists talking about this in the 60s and 70s. And so, like, it mm-hmm. it really, to me, I was like, oh, this is a white person writing about race more so than usual. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I think, mm-hmm. I think Jesse should have, I, I was really surprised that she didn't reflect on that at all.
0: Yeah. Why do you, why do you, I don't know. And what did you think about that? Like just that there was nothing. I mean, it just was sort of dropped there.
2: I think, you know, practically speaking, it's just there's probably too much to go into in a book, Mm. (laughs) you know, as it like, it's an aside comment. And then it's like, they got to stick with the plot, you know, there's that part. But also I do think there's a little bit uh, besides like the time and context of when the book was written is I do think she is, Jesse is only 11. And I don't know if she's thinking like that yet. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think she knows about it because I think she talks about it in the books. Like she's aware Mm-mm. that she's Black and she, like she is, it, she does ballet and she's mm-hmm. like the only Black student. So I think she gets it. But I think like to process that at 11 is like really deep. Um, yeah. I, I just, just think thinking it's like a little bit. My, huh. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just like, I think like, You know, my parents were in internment camps, but I've known that my entire life. But I don't think it really I understood what they meant until I was much older. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just like something that comes with like age kind of.
1: And yes, but I also think that like they would have been having more conversations about that as a family, even even at the young age of, of the mm-hmm. girls, because that's like the kind of, that's the thing, right? You like have to, it's like the, you know, the, the line that like the oppressor, the oppressed have to know how to navigate the world of the oppressor, but the oppressor knows nothing mm-hmm. about the oppressed. Right. So like, um, mm-hmm. I, I just mm-hmm. think that they would have talked more about that as a family. And I think she would have thought yeah. about it. It also more, seems, so. I don't know. Not
2: I feel like I'm making up this whole backstory to the Ramsey family, but it's like, <laughs> you know, it seems like Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey are like professional. She worked in advertising They moving mm-hmm. to Stony Brook. They were leaving New Jersey. And I feel like it just, it seems like we were already saying that Aunt Cecilia seems like she's much older. Mm-hmm. Like it could be they're just like, you know, Aunt Cecilia's experience is different mm-hmm. from Mr. Ramsey's. I don't even know Mr. Ramsey's first name. I don't know if they mm-hmm. ever even say it. So I'm just calling him Mr. Ramsey. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't think they do. I was like, I was like Jesse's dad. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Papa. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And maybe Mr. Ramsey's like view on being black is different from his sister's. Like, I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, hard to say
0: kind of, but Yeah. yeah. Well, right, because we don't get it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I could see that though. I mean, I think that's. I mean, they're definitely portraying that there's a generational shift between them. Like, they could even be. I mean, I don't know how many kids there were in the Ramsey family, but they could be like 15 years apart. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's definitely like more old school, is how Jesse portrays her for sure. And so I could see that. I could see that like, the the parent Ramseys are trying to like, trying to push this more multicultural like we're just gonna get through and we're gonna you know we can take part just as much as anybody else and Aunt cecilia may have some more um kind of concerns based on her life experience based on how she was taught Uh, also
2: it's like cecilia has gone from her multicultural mostly black neighborhood in new jersey
0: to stony brook You know, didn't say she was living somewhere else in Connecticut. Actually, I thought I was assuming she was coming from Oakley, and then it. Oh, I thought they said that sold her house in Connecticut.
2: I thought at one point Jesse was like, "Oh, Dad is going to pick up Aunt Cecilia
0: in New Jersey with the U-Haul." Or did I totally imagine that? Yeah, he goes to pick her up, but it's not in New Jersey. Yeah, I think she lived somewhere else in Connecticut as as well. Connecticut.
1: But she could have like been really in weird. New Jersey before and then like relocated to Connecticut, yeah, I don't know anyway that's uh that was all I had to say about this book
0: <laughs> just those two just those two tiny <laughs> tiny topics yeah, I you know there wasn't a ton there wasn't a ton of psychology that i I was really excited to talk with you about both of those things and just your take on Aunt Cecilia in general. I don't remember as a kid, you know, when you read these as a kid, you are not thinking about the grownups really at all. And so I was just kind of like, huh, it's weird. She's not mentioning the pranks when Jesse and Becca are pulling these like terrible pranks on her. Again, we get short sheeting. It's very popular in Stony Brook, Connecticut in the so funny. <laughs> late eighties, early nineties. Um, uh, you know, I did not see like how ridiculous Becca and Jesse were being. And I get like, Look, I fault Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey. They did not set this up well, right? So we've talked about blended families. Like, transitions in families are hard. We talked about kind of the Spears and the Shafers, just sort of crossing their fingers and jumping in compared to kind of how the Brewer Thomases managed their familial transition. And I think the Ramseys screwed up here. I think they were like, yes, I'm going to work, bye. And they didn't, like, orient Aunt Cecilia. Like, it wouldn't be that hard to say, like, Jessie has babysitter's club meetings three times a week. She's allowed yeah. to do that. It's a responsibility that she has. That like, seems really Jessie unrealistic and Becca to me. I know <laughs> a lot about taking care of Squirt. Yeah. I, I just feel like they it was a little bit of a setup. And I, I get that they're distracted. I get this is a big transition for Mrs. Ramsey to go back to work out of, you know, after 11, 12 years out of the workforce. But it seemed like they would have told her basic things about taking care of their children. And rather, Aunt Cecilia was sort of like making up the system from scratch, which of course she's going to get pushback from the kids. Like that's that's bizarre. So yeah, that was my biggest complaint in terms of the the how it was like. I think they set Aunt Cecilia up um, for problems that really were not her fault. So. That seemed kind of silly. Yeah, to me. she
2: was like, "What's this babysitting club you're in?" Yeah, what the <laughs> fuck? I don't know <laughs> exactly. these people.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and do they not have like a family calendar? Like, okay, Becca well, plays as with me- Charlotte all the time, like. But everyone has a calendar. okay? (laughs) When you have three children, one of whom goes to like ballet lessons in Stanford and like babysits all over town the rest of the time. Like it's really surprising that she wouldn't know or like she wouldn't know that Becca's best friend is named Charlotte Johansson or like just some really basic stuff or that the girls are allowed to take squirt to walk around the neighborhood.
1: Like Yeah, this is the one character like, I'm with you on your uh, apologist train for. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, good. I agree. Excellent.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, poor Aunt Cecilia. God mm-hmm. damn it. Like, just have a little bit of sensitivity. Also, like, how long ago did her husband die? I know. This woman's, like, mourning. And they're like, ew, you brought all your ugly shit with you. Like, they're so mad about how much stuff she has in the youth hall. And I'm like...
1: I live thought Stacy's
0: big ass house from when her parents were still together.
1: I thought that there was going to be a plot line where Aunt Cecilia has to put her stuff in in Jesse's like bar room in the basement, and that was going to be like a point of contention. <laughs>
0: ha! Right, the two rooms that the eleven year old has dedicated to uh-huh. her, she has to share with her mourning aunt. Yeah. Ugh, the horror. i was so mad. <laughs> but I did, you know, but I did like that Jesse wasn't perfect in this book. Like, I, you know, I'm thinking across the Jesse books, you know, we get the, her debut is amazing. Love Jesse's secret language, but she's far too perfect, as we discussed in that episode with Jeff. And then we get the worst book of the series yet, um, Jesse Ramsey Petsitter. Um, oh, no, Jesse and the Super Brat is the worst one. Sorry. Jesse Ramsey Petsitter is just like a fun romp. And then Jesse and the super is just kind of garbage, and so th- this I mm-hmm. felt like was more balanced. Like I thought we got to see more of Jesse. We got to see her not be perfect and trip up, um, and also apologize. Yeah, she's kind of a dick, um, and, in this you know, one, deal with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then she realizes it, you know, right. and she 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 takes a she she we you know take. I was gonna say takes a page from Christy Bell. Say takes a page from Bart Taylor and does a good apology, um, Hot. and you know apologizes to yeah. Emily has heart eyes. Apologizes <laughs> to both Jackie and her aunt, which I think it would be hard things to do at 11, you know, to, to talk with the Rodowskis about um, how much she took over the science fair. That to me was also really interesting. There's like these echoes of Little Miss Stony Brook. They even mentioned that, mm-hmm. that, you know, the sitters had gotten competitive before with the kids. And none of the other ones seem to get that way. They're just like, oh, yeah, like, well, and and several times Anna Martin has one of the other sitters say, like, well, I'll help you, but I won't do it for you for the science fair project. And Jesse knows that the others are saying this to the kids they're working with, but Jesse is just like, no, 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 sedimentary. You know, she's just like doing it all. And the fact that she, Yeah. And the fact that she wouldn't think that Jackie would have to answer any questions about it was also really funny to me.
1: Well, it's another one of those like um, overly like heavy handed lessons, right? Like there's there's an obvious parallel between this babysitting problem and a problem in her personal life. And she's not drawing the Mm -hmm. connection until at the end. She's like, you know, this is kind of like what I did to Jackie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I did like um I did like seeing the different science experiments and like how much the kids were excited about it and like some of the like I love the Margot's like Barbies on the Moon uh, and how Mallory's just like shrug like <laughs> You do you, girl. That was good. Um I loved Charlotte's experiment. And that the Duran Duran plant grew the best out of the like no music, classical music or Duran Duran. Um, That was very amusing to me. And I love that she was doing an actual experiment. Um, So that was really funny. Um, And then the other babysitting thing, since I'm the only one that cares about that, that I really enjoyed was the Pike kids making a lending library and how they all like got into like organizing their books and having a library for the neighborhood um those kinds of big projects involving multiple kids i remember doing some of those kinds of things as a kid and it was just i thought it was really well um well rendered and cute and i like that we get a a What's the word? A flashback to Jeff and Dawn selling wild fl- flowers in front of their house in California. I know. I was like, hilarious. wait,
1: is this is this something we should add to our California Mythbusters section? <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I thought that, but then I was like, but is it a myth or not? I
0: I don't know. Maybe kids do would sell wild wild flowers. I never did it though. I think it's pretty unlikely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a myth. <laughs> let's bu- okay. let's bust it. <laughs> All right.
1: Okay. Not what we do. We also sell lemonade and
0: cookies. Everyone
1: sells lemonade and cookies. Although have we already talked about yard sales on the podcast?
0: Yes. I think we have. Because they had the big one in um goodbye, Stacey, goodbye. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah. 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 I would just like our listeners to know that in our outline for today, (laughs) Anne's Corner has one word. I'm not gonna say what it is yet, but I'm very excited about it. (laughs)
0: Okay. So I have one more thing that's not the science experiments, mm-hmm. which is this is our first, I, I like actually said eeps when Jesse says the following on page 54, this is where, oh, Emily, you didn't even comment on the fact that they're calling her aunt dictator. I know. I thought you might have some things about that too.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I kinda How like, accurate that is. Yeah. <laughs> I liked it. I, well, you know, my life goal is to be a benevolent dictator of something, yes. of something. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so Aunt Cecilia was like actively babysitting and then she reminds Becca and Jesse to use their napkins and to clean their plates. And Jesse says, "I am much too old to be told to clean my plate. Sometimes I can't. Besides, I have to watch my weight. I can't be a fat ballerina." Um yeah, and that was just this is the first time I I know there's some writing online and some of our listeners have mentioned like um the body shaming that comes up in the babysitters club later on, and that none of the girls are overweight that we know of. It's certainly not mentioned. I I would say compared to like sweet Valley high, where we hear consistently that Jessica and Elizabeth Wakefield are a perfect size six. I think there's less emphasis on the shape of the babysitters so far, but I'm wondering if this is like an opening into that.
1: Yeah. I mean, coming more and more going forward in the series. We talked about that a bit in the super special because there's a girl in camp, right? Who's who they mm-hmm. describe as fat, and she's the one who's like, right? Um, I forget whose cabin she's in, but she's like the antisocial oh, one, Heather. Who nobody gets along yeah. with, right? Yeah. Um, and then there, I, we have seen a few times, Dawn gets referred to as really thin, and mm. by some of the other babysitters in her Mm. description chapters Mm -hmm. and I think Claudia does too right there isn't there there's been some comments about how like it's wild that Claudia is so thin because she eats so much junk food but like it's been pretty sparse yeah so I'm I'm wondering if it's gonna especially if we see more ghost writers and if that's gonna
0: start that shortcut is gonna increase and I understand that there is legitimate pressure on ballet dancers to not gain weight for for lots of athletic reasons and aesthetic reasons. And it was just like, oh, okay. All right. There we go. We'll see that. So I'm interested to see how that tracks. Yeah. But Anne, you have important things to discuss. Yeah.
2: Well, before we get to Tang. <laughs> which is the single word in yeah. the section. I
0: did want to <laughs> talk
2: about the Brady Bunch really quick. I mean, so. Yes. 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 <laughs> So, there's a lot of references (laughs) to the Brady Bunch episode where Peter makes a volcano. Yeah. Okay. Classic. Classic. So, that's a very classic episode. So, I just did a little, like, you know, research onto the episode just to refresh my memory. And all that comes up, like, the top Google searches are all about how the volcano is, like, basically, like Peter's coming of age story because it's, like, the volcano erupting all over, like, Marsha's friends.
1: Ew.
0: Gross, (laughs)
2: gross
0: <laughs> and, and I was like, awesome. i
2: have never thought of that before but it's oh like a God. lot of deep dives into analyzing that episode um uh, from that point of view
1: anyway that was the thing i did not be- like about the film call me by your name like every in every scene there's like a waterfall erupting or like an egg like yolk <laughs> like falling out of the egg. And I was like, we get it. It's about a young boy's sexual awakening. Please. I'm not that stupid. Stop telling me. (laughs) Like, I think I was the only person who did not like that movie. And that was my biggest criticism of it.
0: (laughs) That reminds me of, um, you know, uh, my husband and I are both psychologists, but we're both behavioral psychologists and not psychodynamic psychoanalytic. And when we were in training, if we were working with, like he had a couple of times in New York, which is still a very like Freudian place in psychology where, um, like a supervisor at a hospital setting that he was interning at would be, Oh, you probably can't see the symbolism in this picture because you don't have psychodynamic training. But I believe that this represents a phallus or something. And it would literally be like a kid had like actually drawn a penis. And <laughs> Gary would be like, Yeah, I know what a penis looks
1: like. <laughs> you know, well, the, I don't need special training. The penis is not the phallus, you know. In, yeah. <laughs> in social theory, the phallus represents <laughs> social power oh and God. the top rung on the hierarchy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. yeah you yeah. know i love freud as a social theorist <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: i've given you permission for that it's fine um but i'm not going to diagnose a kid based on how big the penis they draw is and what about tang
1: what That's if it's not like really you
0: big <laughs> yeah, exactly like
2: i mean how and like how do they draw it what if only has
0: one ball Okay, sorry, listeners. This is not psychology. (laughs) I want to hear about Tang. Let's move on from Peter's disgusting volcano that has been ruined for me forever. I wish we could name our episode
2: Peter's volcano, but okay, we can name it
1: whatever we want.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Tang. So I think when in the chapter where they're talking about Marco's uh, science project, which is really a shadow box. (laughs) With like Barbies in it, Uh, she talks about how uh, the astronauts would have to bring Tang with them. Which Mm -hmm. I was like, oh yeah, Tang. Like, why is Tang always associated with space travel? And Mm -hmm. what's what's the connection there? So is it always associated
1: with space travel? (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think that's what they're most famous for is is Tang and like and like you know being the astronauts' beverage of choice.
0: We're we're experiencing a Gen X millennial gap right now. That's what's yes. happening with Emily's confused face.
1: So Tang, okay. I thought Tang was something Anna Martin made up. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay,
2: so Tang uh, was created by General Foods in 1957 by food scientist uh, William A. Mitchell, who this guy is pretty awesome. He also invented Pop Rocks. Huh. cool whip nice. what? and also instant jello
1: i
0: feel like we need a t-shirt with william h mitchell's face on it i know i would it, wear that he's...
2: but i was like this guy was like super cool and it made me think i should have been a food scientist anyway
1: oh my great callback, back in one episode ago <laughs> <laughs> so okay tang
2: as i said uh Created in 1957, but it wasn't really popular. Um, so it wasn't until, uh, well, first, okay, it was invented by William A. Mitchell because he wanted children to get the recommended dose of vitamin C every day. Um, and part of the marketing strategy was actually saying that, did you know only 50% of kids get the recommended dose of vitamin C a day? So that's kind of like, the, that was really the marketing strategy there. And it was also just pretty much marketed towards moms. Mm-hmm. as a drink to give their children. And it was in powder
1: form, important to know. Mm-hmm.
2: So yes, fast moms forward because years.
1: moms are the only ones who do childcare.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Literally, I think like some of the ads were like, "Moms, give your kid Tang." Like, "Moms, oh, yeah. like moms oh. know best" and like stuff like yeah. that. So, fast forward a few years when NASA started sending men into space, um they were doing food experience uh experiments on like what kind of foods would do best in, you know, zero gravity on the shuttle. So there were some requirements which were, it had to withstand 130 degree temperatures for four hours and also 100 degrees for two weeks. And then at some point, NASA figured out, or NASA scientists figured out that Tang could be a really good solution to beverages because also the the water that was aboard these missions was treated um, Mm -hmm. that it didn't make the water taste good. Like the astronauts Mm -hmm. kind of complained about like, oh, it kind of tastes off because they had to just like infuse it with certain things to make it suitable for outer space, I guess. Um, So when they were doing the food experiments um, like John, in 1962, John Glenn, he was conducting the eating experiments aboard a Gemini mission and he realized that it was really hard to drink canned beverages and stuff like that, obviously, because how would you tr- like put the liquid into your mouth and the canned beverages and everything? Mm. And the NASA food scientists had discovered that um, you could put the powdered tang into like a pouch, and then they figured out a way to inject the water into it,
0: and then they would just kind of shake it, and then they would just- So they also invented Capri Sun? <laughs>
2: exactly. Well, here's the thing. It's funny because I was like, what do these pouches look like? And I just thought of Capri Sun. So, yeah. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. they might have not looked like that. But I think Mm -hmm. it's some sort of foil pouch is, you Mm -hmm. know. Uh, But the astronauts were like, yeah, Tang's the best. It was just kind of like, this is what's aboard our spacecraft.
0: And it's what's most. better than the gross water. Yeah.
2: And it's like what's convenient (laughs) to drink. But, of course, you know. Uh, General Foods was like yes, like Tang in outer space. So they just basically took this thing and just like ran with it, like, mm-hmm. and that was like even I think to uh, they became a big advertiser also. And like I think even when they showed news footage of like they had those special like news coverage things about you know space, they would have like the reporters on the set and in, on on like the desk would be this big they would say tang on it um amazing yeah so that's kind of so it was there's a misconception that tang was especially made for space travel but that's not true mm-hmm. um, interestingly tang is still popular in south america mm. um and also this is i didn't get to research this but this is fascinating that it's um, there's a 20 to 25% spike in Tang sales around Ramadan in India and Pakistan. Huh. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But then I was like, I don't, I didn't know how to research that accurately, but, you know, I guess there is a traditional drink that uh, it's like a apricot nectar you'll mm-hmm. you'll drink after fasting, mm-hmm. uh, but also Tang.
0: I mean I wonder if there's something if there's some wisdom to trying to extra replenish your vitamin C if you're ha- if you're going a long period of time without eating. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean that's what I would I would think mm-hmm. but anyway. That's that so interesting. interesting to me.
0: Yeah. So that's that, really interesting.
1: Yeah. So that is the Tang story. Wow. Thank you. I I, yeah. I did not receive any Tang from Amazon this week, so <laughs> I, I guess know. I don't have Tang. No, of course not. You, you've
0: never had Tang? No. Oh. it's a, I mean, I haven't had it a lot. Yeah. I've had it like PAMP.
2: Yeah. Like. It's like very similar. I feel like in the same like time era as Ovaltine, mm-hmm. I guess they were trying to really just like give kids nutrition. I don't know if kids were like malnutritioned in the 50s and 60s, but yeah. <laughs> do you know what Ovaltine is, Emily? Because we can send you some.
1: <laughs> I know what it is, but I've never had it.
0: Uh, I've had it. I like Tang better than Ovaltine, but that'll surprise no one because I'm not that much of a chocolate person.
2: Yeah. yeah. All
0: right. Speaking of candies.
2: Candies. So their are Peanut Bar, which I feel like is a first mention, which would have been really oh. helpful on that island, to be honest.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Would have been better last week. Is that a sure. neck
2: What's the plan? Yeah. For? It's just like a lot of peanuts that's like mushed together with some nougat, I believe. Weird. Esme is, is uh Googling, I believe. Yes, well. Our
1: onset researcher.
2: <laughs> yeah. And there's also a mention of Neko wafers. Oh Esme, yes. We have some news. <laughs>
0: alert alert yes yes i've been able to research no i uh it was from the 50s i don't know if they're still making them but it basically just like ann said it looks like a bunch of peanuts smashed together Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um i think it has maybe caramel in between Mm -hmm. um but they don't make them much anymore they feature really prominently in the um the rabbit series john Updike, because he's supposed to he has a heart attack and he's supposed to stop eating peanuts and he, but he's like guilty pleasure as the planner's peanut bar. And then he has another heart attack. Like, do peanuts, not spoilers, was, but the books came out a long time ago.
2: Are peanuts bad for your heart?
0: Uh, well, because he eats like a lot of salty nuts. So there's like cholesterol and salt. It was also in the 70s. I don't know if that's still true. Like, I, I'm not a doctor, but it's a part of the rabbit
1: quadrology. Do you want to know anyway. something about that quadrology that's weird? Yeah. In my yeah. – uh, in high school, in our senior year class, there was, like, some weird standardized, like, English exam you had to take district-wide, and there was an update mm-hmm. question on it, and I was the single person in the district who got it right because I was, the, I guess, the only <laughs> high school senior who had read those books. <laughs> that's my Amazing. brag for the day.
0: Uh, uh, that's a good brag. It's a good brag.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Planners, Peated Spar, and Necco Wafers – but wait, I wanted to really quickly touch on the fact that Mr. Pike might lose his job soon.
0: I know. Mm-hmm. Is that going to be a the plot of a Mallory book? I, I mean, I would guess so, but I don't remember. It's amazing to me how little I remember now that we're in the thirties. Like, I know I read this book multiple times, and I was like, it's like I'm reading it all again. Yeah. Like, it's all, it's all new. Yeah. Man, so no more so. no more Sea
2: City vacations.
0: Uh, would they go back in a super special?
2: Oh, hmm. So, maybe he
0: didn't get laid off. We'll see. Yeah. Well,
1: I don't know if the Pikes go. Maybe it's just the rest of the BSC. Oh, interesting. Mm. But I feel like we've established that they're far richer than just his job, right? Like, they have to have. <laughs> Based on your pronouncement. Yeah. I've decided <laughs> they have to have intergenerational wealth. They hired Probably. two boats yeah. multiple days in a row. <laughs> I know. We, we- yeah. I feel like I've just
2: been thinking yeah. about that island. For, you know, since last week.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. A lot to process. It's going to stay with me. Stay with me for a long time. Tallies wise, we get one bossy, one babyish, one shy, one sophisticated, no, two sophisticated, and an exotic back on the scene the first time. I noticed that. We have the one Mm -hmm. other BIPOC person calling the other, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, the Asian person exotic, but there it is. I mean, I wish I was exotic. But
2: I'm
1: not. Yeah.
0: What would it mean if you were exotic? Sorry, Anne. You're pretty boring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who's exotic? Who's exotic? What do you? What is that even? Well, it's a, that's a dangerous road to go down.
2: <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think of like exotic animals. Mm. And you wish you were
0: a ring-tailed lemur.
2: Yeah. And I don't. I feel like I don't associate with them.
1: You know there's an interesting there's a woman who is a has a dual appointment I think in biology and women and gender studies at um I think WashU Wash in St. Louis but she wrote a book tracking the like emergence of the scientific study of invasive species kind of in in botany with like the emergence of discourse around Like aliens uh, uh, in in like political immigration contexts, and like like argued that the the like fear uh, over like uh, immigrants of different races was kind of like exacerbated by in some sense, or like inflected the study the scientific study of kind of plants, which I thought was invasive species. Uh It's just really interesting. Wow, Mm -hmm. we've
0: gotten really far afield. Nice our topic today.
2: This could be content for our, our Patreon, to be honest. Oh, that's
0: true. That's true. Good point. Get some, get some good deep dive discussions. Yeah. What exotic
2: animal does Anne want to be? Mm. Yeah. Give us $100 and we'll tell you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> L-O-L. What's your weirdest line, everybody?
2: I have two. I have goop, goop, goop. <laughs> oh, that is Jackie about his volcano. And also, this isn't really, uh, like, a, a great line, but I, I did like it when Josie said her aunt was an overbearing pig. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you just thought that was a good
2: insult? Yeah. Well, it's just, yeah. like, it's not, like, it's a very old-fashioned, like, what an yeah. 11-year-old would say that.
1: Yeah. It's like Club of Fools. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. I also really, um, I, I actually have... really like Aunt Dictator. I gotta yeah Confess. i like Ant dictator too
0: <laughs> that was that was it's it's good that was on that was on my list as well um i had two jackie you have goop 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 i had two other jackie Jackieisms on mine one was his exclamation when he falls and breaks something on the other side of the door when jesse's going to babysit which is oh bullfrogs with a, a like bull <laughs> oh, <in yeah>. italics <laughs> which I thought was really funny. And then um, when he's trying to remember the type of rocks um, and he says, agus, morpheus and sedentary. Um, Very cute. So those were my, those are my two.
2: Hmm. I feel like we should go with Ant dictator though.
0: Yeah. It's it's on the nose. I mean, unless you want multiple callbacks to Peter's volcano, I'm fine with going with Ant dictator.
2: Oh, yeah. well, that that's what we're calling the episode, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Volcano. Pizza
2: toast. We could also pizza toast to
1: Peter's Volcano. Ew, no. <laughs> we could pizza toast to the phallus. <laughs> to patriarchy. Yay. Yay. Um, we could pizza toast to science. Esme, would you like that?
0: I'm halfway through your dissertation. I feel like you're being mean when you say that. Oh, I. this is a really random thing that came up. I think it's really funny that Jessie, in the first chapter, when they say her mom has a surprise... Before they've announced that Mama got a new job, she's trying to guess what it is. And she thinks that it might be a trip to Texas because she's always wanted oh, to yeah. see Texas. I actually yeah. have
2: that noted here. And I, I say, <laughs> Jesse really wants to go
1: to Texas? Should we pizza yeah. toast to Texas?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think to, specifically to Jesse's dreams of Texas. Okay. Like, I'm very excited of what this, like, Black girl in suburban Connecticut thinks Texas means. Yeah.
2: I mean, what does it? Yeah, what could it be?
0: She's real into it.
2: Maybe I'm, if you contri- maybe if you go to our Patreon, we'll talk about it. If you give us $100, <laughs> we'll talk about Texas.
0: You can also give us $3.
1: We need to start like putting our self plugs at the end and you really got to warm up to that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right, so to to Jesse's Dreams of Texas. Yeah, that sounds good.
2: Uh, pizza toast to Jesse's
1: Dreams of Texas. To, to Jesse's dreams, dreams of, of Texas. <laughs> This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned.
0: Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.